Um, pretty good pace here through the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. And we're going to actually slow it down a little bit tonight. Uh, we're only going to, hopefully, Lord willing, time willing, do verses 12 through 21. And this is kind of important that we slow it down because I personally believe in 2 Corinthians 5, 12 through 21 are two of the most important verses in the entire Bible. I know it's a pretty big statement, but I really do believe in 2 Corinthians 5 here, two of the most important verses in the entire Bible are in this section. Now, Corinthians is one of those books, it's called an epistle, and it's generally a little heavy in what's called the theology section. Well, verses 12 through 21, there's a lot of theology tonight. Yes, there's application. Yes, there's practicality of what we're supposed to be doing as Christians, as a witness for Christ. But there's also some of these 25-cent words that we don't use a whole lot that we need to understand. And as you go through this lesson tonight, in verses 12 through 21, I hope you walk out of here tonight with a deeper understanding of what it really means to be saved in Christ. To really understand what that concept means to be saved out of hell and into heaven with Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about here tonight. So I'm excited about this chapter. I like doing some of these meaty lessons every now and then. And to be quite honest, when I look at these verses, you can never do a lesson like this justice. These are one of these lessons that you probably need to take and spend a good year or two on as you go through this. Because some of these points are just so deep. And you really just stop and you think, wow, Lord, what does this mean? So with that being said, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. And those who live shall live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Now, this is starting to get some pretty heavy intellectual arguments here, but that's what I like about Paul. Paul's a deep guy. He's a thinker. So as you go through this, the first thing he's kind of laying out here in verse 12 is, look at the end of verse 12, your appearance or your heart. That's what he starts out by saying, your appearance or your heart. Now, that's kind of an interesting question, because a lot of times we judge Christianity based on appearance. The person looks good spiritually. They're quoting the verses. They're attending the prayer meetings. They are wearing the Christian shirts. They're serving here. They're serving there. There is a good appearance on how they go. What Paul says, though, in verse 12 is, I don't care if you boast in your appearance. I want you to know what your heart's like, because that's what matters more than anything. Because I know some Christians who, if you would look at them, they may not be the most vocal. They may not be the most uh, visible in church. But boy, they got a heart. They got a heart for the Lord. And when I say they're not vocal, I don't mean that they're afraid to share the gospel of Christ. I'm just saying that they may be that quiet one. But boy, they have a heart for Christ. And Paul says, that's what I care about. I believe in one translation. One translation, I believe it's New Living Translation. It it talks about something about um, spectacular ministry. Does somebody have New Living out there? Kathy, what's it say, Kathy? I like that. Those that brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. And you know what? Without naming names... You know as well as I do, if you go flip on the TV for a while, you'll see a lot of people on TV that have a spectacular ministry. But what's the heart like? I don't know. God knows. But I see some that really have a spectacular ministry. But Paul says it's not the appearance, it's the heart. To be quite honest with you, in a not judgmental way, some of the most vocal Christians I've ever seen really have a shallow walk with Christ. But some of the quietest Christians I've ever seen, boy, sometimes they're deep. And Paul says it's not the appearance, 
He goes, but it's the heart. That's what matters. And when I was preparing this message, I thought of that great passage in the book of Matthew where, where Jesus was talking about this. And he comes right out and says, in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now look at verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? As the New Living says there, spectacular ministry. And Jesus says in verse 23 of Matthew 7, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a powerful passage. And that passage is a passage based on, it's not what you do, it is, is your heart given over to Christ? Judas walked with Jesus for three years, but yet his heart was never fully given over to him. Paul says, it's not the appearance that you boast in, but it's your heart. Is your heart where it's supposed to be? Because if it's in your heart, that's why we do what we do. That's why we do what... This is the point now for the rest of this message. This is why we do what we do, because our heart has been changed by Christ. Look at verse 13. He goes, basically, the world thinks we're crazy. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Have you noticed that? If you stand up for the Lord, the world is going to think you're crazy. That's just a fact. This is why a lot of people aren't vocal about their faith. They're afraid of what other people are going to think about them. Paul, 6,000 years ago, through the Spirit, said, hey, if you stand up for the Lord, you're going to look like you're crazy. Let me stop and think about Christianity. This is what we believe. We believe that 6,000 years ago, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. You know, we don't believe in that millions and billions of years of evolution. So right there, we're already idiots, according to the world. Number two, we believe in the concept of eternity. The concept of there's an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. I've heard somebody say, so you believe in the invisible man in the sky? Sure. I haven't seen him, but I don't think he's invisible. But yeah, I believe in him. Do you believe in the fairy tale? I just read something online today when I was preparing for this message. The one guy said, and called, instead of calling it the crucifixion, he called it the crucifixion, spelled F-I-C-T-I-O-N. The crucifixion. And the world thinks we're crazy. And this sometimes, I see Christians, it kind of gets to them a little bit. Why is it when I stand up for the Lord that people put me down? Why is it when I try to take a stand for the Lord, everybody just laughs? Because God said that's what's going to happen. And to be quite honest with you, if you want to make a public stand for the Lord, you have to be thick-skinned in Christ. You have to be. Christianity is not for the thin-skinned. It's not. And, and I've said this before, tongue-in-cheek, if you're looking for a religion that makes everybody happy and you can all get together and sing Kumbaya, it's not Christianity. Because when you're a Christian, you're automatically saying, I'm going to offend a few billion people in the world by saying I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so therefore, Paul says, the world's going to think we're crazy in verse 13. That's okay. He goes, why are we doing it? We're doing it for you. And why do we do it for you? Because look at verse 14. I love verse 14. The love of Christ compels us. Why do you do what you do for the Lord? Because the love of Christ compels you. That's why I do what I do. He died, so as he died, I also died with him. Look at that. Because we judge thus... That if one died, my new King James has one capitalized, Christ, died for all, then all died. So since Christ died, I died. So what does that mean? It means it's no longer my life. And that's an important part of Christianity. It's no longer what I want, it's what God wants. If you're taking notes, write this verse down. Mark 8.35, Mark 8.35, For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. I've decided to lose my life for the gospel. But here's the problem. We as human beings are very, very selfish, are we not? 
I hear these comments a lot. I deserve fill in the blank. It's my turn now, fill in the blank. Boy, I've heard that a lot. I've spent my years living my life doing this for them, so now it's my turn. It's me time. I've actually heard people come right out and say that. See, now, when you look at it from the perspective of Christ, Paul writes in verse 14, he goes, no, you, you died. You died to your desires, your passions, and so therefore you now live for Christ. Look at verse 15. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Do you know people that are only living for themselves? My goodness. Do not watch the news and see how selfish parents are. I mean, they have these kids and there's just this selfishness. It's all about them. Do you not watch the news and see how selfish people are and how much it's just about them? They no longer care about who's ever around them. They no longer care about anything. It is just about them. I deserve this. It's my turn now. Fill in the blank. Part of Christianity from the beginning says you put others before yourself. That was a point that we talked about on Sunday with the book of Esther. It's one of the things that God says is other people go before you. Philippians 2, you esteem others greater than yourself. You put other people before you. We struggle with this, don't we? We struggle with this idea of putting other people before us. Now, no one wants to admit it, but we're selfish. I'll admit it because I'm more spiritual than you. I'm selfish. I'll sit there at home on the couch. Layden is strapped in his chair in the kitchen. He's done eating. So he starts to do the little fuss thing. I'll just pretend I didn't hear him. Because I know Dawn will eventually hear him. But Dawn is more selfish than me. And so she'll pretend more that I, she didn't hear him so that I'll be the mature one to get up and go take care of him. There is a selfishness in every single one of us when it comes to anything. That is just us. Have you, have you ever not been in a line waiting to go someplace and you see somebody cut? Oh, that one person cost me 30 seconds, and we are selfish. Well, it's not that I'm selfish, it's just that it's right and wrong. No, a lot of it is we're just selfish. We're just a selfish people. So Paul is trying to tell us here in verse 15, very simply put, I'm asking you, he's asking, are you living for yourself? Are you living for Christ? Because if you're living for Christ, then verse 14, the love of Christ compels you to be a light and a witness, and because you live for Christ, verse 13, it doesn't matter if the world thinks you're crazy, because you are compelled by Christ, we live for Jesus. That is Christianity. That is why we are called Christians. We are a follower of Christ. And I was just hearing a great teaching this week on um, CSN, the station there from the church. And, and the pastor is making a point. And, and I know I've heard this point before, but it finally hit me. Jesus did all this for us. Yet we whine and complain about the tiniest little things that we feel led to do. I mean, he went to the cross, and he went to this verse, the love of Christ compels us. Listen, guys, there's, there's times in your life, in my life, where there's things that we don't want to do. But the love of Christ compels us. It compels us to hold our tongue. It compels us to make a stand for what's right. It compels us to forgive when we really don't want to forgive. It compels us to forget when we never think that those hurts and sins are done against us. It compels us to let things go. It compels us to show grace and mercy. That's what the love of Christ does. It compels us to do those things because of what Christ did for us. Verse 16, Therefore, because of all this, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we him know Him thus no longer. Now, how many of you can say that? Because of this, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's a big statement to say, I don't judge anyone now according to the flesh. Now, this is not saying you're not judging their actions. Sin is still sin. I can't judge you. And I've heard Christians say that before. Well, judge not, lest you be judged. Who am I to say anything? I'm not saying anything. It's the Word of God that's saying it's right and wrong. 
But what this verse 16 is saying in the context of this is we don't look at the flesh and make a judgment call on someone's spirituality because they don't fit the mold of what we want or something along that type of line. Why do we not do that? Because verse 17 is the key. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Don't you love that verse? Don't you every now and then almost just want to jump to 2 Corinthians 5 and make sure that verse is still in there? I'm a new creation. I don't know how many times in the 12 years I've been out here as a pastor, I have quoted that verse to someone. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You're a new creation. Do you know why? Because people still carry their past around with them. People do. They carry this past around with them, and, and they can't let it go. Maybe that they did something wrong. They have done something so wrong that they are past the points of grace and forgiveness, and therefore God can never love them, people can never forgive them, and so they carry this past around with them. Ah, Jesus just said everyone can be a new creation. Now, you either believe that or you don't. Or they have been wronged. Someone has hurt them so bad, they can never forgive that person and move on with their life. Well, why not? Christ said you can become a new creation, so as a new creation, I can have the love of Christ to forgive people. Now, the question comes up, do we want to do that or not? Because people like to carry their past around. Paul wrote a great verse in Romans 7. You don't need to turn there. He, he goes to this great uh, passage in Romans 7, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, where he basically says, hey, there's a sin nature living in me. I want to live more for Christ, but the problem is the sin nature. My choices keep controlling me and making me make stupid choices because I choose sin. So he, choose, he finishes up with this. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7.24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, we don't know this for sure, and I don't usually go to these type of details because I like to know that it's a fact. But supposedly, the background for that verse is that where Paul came from, part of the penalty was if you were a convicted murderer, they would take your victim and tie that victim around your neck. And part of your penalty was that you had to literally carry around the dead, dying, decomposing carcass of the person that you killed around your neck as part of your punishment. And that's why Paul said, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul said, I'm such a sinner. I'm carrying around this dead body everywhere I go of sin. And what's his answer? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one that delivers him. Now the reason I bring this up is some of you carry around a dead body with you everywhere you go. A dead body of past choices that you shouldn't make. A dead body of hurts that's been done against you. You carry this around with you. And so therefore you read that verse about being a new creation. Everybody but me. I can't become the new creation. I'm not the one that can do this. Is the grace of God does not touch you? Because look at the 2 Corinthians 5 one more time. Therefore, if anyone, are you anyone? I think you're anyone. In Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, what? All things have become new. All things have become new. Everything has become new. Turn, if you will, to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. If anybody knew about letting their past go and moving forward in Christ, it would have to be the Apostle Paul. If you don't know Paul's background, before he had his conversion, his name change, he was Saul. Saul's job was to go around and gather up Christians and have them killed. That was Paul in his old life. Well, in Philippians 3, he just touches on that for a little bit. Talk about letting your past go. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may hold of the, for, excuse me, that I lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 13, 
I have to forget those things which are behind. What was Paul's life behind? He literally had Christians killed. I don't know what your life is behind you. I don't know what you're having a hard time letting go of. But God is telling you in verse 13, you need to let go of those things in the past. You reach forward for what's ahead in verse 13, and you press towards the goal of Christ Jesus. Now, you either believe that or you don't. Years ago, there was a gal coming out here, and she, she was really struggling with this idea of letting the past go and moving forward. And I remember distinctly, we were standing out in the parking lot, it was after church one time, and we took her to this verse, and you said, you got to let it go. you got to let it go. And I remember her standing there with tears in her eyes. She looked at me and she goes, I can't. And you know what? She never did. And to this day, she doesn't come out here, still know a little bit what's going on with life. She hasn't let it go. Her past keeps her from moving forward in Christ. Now, the reason I bring this up is because some people do not experience the fullness of a relationship with Jesus Christ, of grace and mercy, because they think their past holds on to them. What a horrible condemnation from Satan, isn't it? I mean, isn't that just a lie from the pit of hell? That your past controls what you are now in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation in the Lord. You put those things in the past and move on. Now, the problem is someone is sitting out here, they're going to be listening to this CD sometime, and they're going to say, yeah, it's easy for you to say. Come on, do you think that you're the only person that has a past? Look at the person beside you for crying out loud. Everybody has a past. People have brought so much baggage into their relationship with Christ. Jesus is good at taking care of baggage. That's what he does. He cleans up the past and makes us new in him. We are a brand new creation. Behold, all things have become new. Now, how is this possible? Jump back now, if you will, to verse 18, because now we have to get into the 25-cent word of the night. The reason this is possible is because of verse 18. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That word reconciliation is the key word. And that's not a word that we use a whole awful lot. In fact, the first time I ever really used that word apart from Christianity and regular basis is when I was in college taking finance classes, we did bank reconciliations. And so what happened was that word reconciliation, when you look it up in the original Greek, it's actually a finance term. You reconcile your checkbook. You make sure all the deposits are right which is actually a wonderful picture of grace. Because back in Romans 3, the Bible says that your sin and my sin is a debt that we can't pay. And so Jesus paid our debt of sin on the cross. He really just paid my bills off. He reconciled my bank statement. The next time you're filling out your bills, the next time you're balancing your checkbook, you're reconciling your checkbook, you're making sure everything lines up, aren't you? That's exactly what Christ did on the cross. He said, James owes money. James can't pay that debt of sin. I'm going to pay that debt for him. And look, I will reconcile this, and I'll make sure all debts are paid. It's actually a banking finance term that everything is now paid off. Now, it also carries another meaning. And this other meaning is if you reconcile, that means you make peace. And so we are reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, write down this verse, Romans 5.10. It says, for even when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You were an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God. Christ died on the cross for our sins. So therefore, now I have peace with God. I had debts that couldn't be paid. I couldn't pay off my debts. I am now reconciled to God by being His friend. I am now reconciled to God because Christ paid off my debts. How can I be a new creation in Christ? Verse 17, because I've been reconciled. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I mean, the, the closest example we can think of from a financial standpoint is imagine you just went out and bought a house. 
Pick any amount for your house that you wanted. So you finally got this house, you got it, and you go to the bank and you're going to do a 30-year mortgage. I don't know, the house is $100,000, $150,000. So the next 30 years, for the next every month, for the next 30 years, 360 payments, you are paying X amount of dollars. That's hanging over your head. Somebody comes and says it's paid off. It's reconciled. It's done. Wouldn't you feel a little free? Wouldn't you feel a little thankful? Wouldn't you feel, wow, well... The point is, on a much bigger scale, when you and I got saved, we're free. We're reconciled. We're a new creation in Christ. So with that being said, someone's paid off your house debt. How stupid would you have to be to still make a check every month to the bank? Because, you know, I know it's paid off. I know I don't owe anything, but I just feel better, or I feel like I should, or I just know I owe. It's paid off. How many of you that has maybe paid off a mortgage in your life, when you got done with that last thing, did you still just keep paying the bank because you felt like you should? No. Every time that we've paid off a part of this church, we've, we've, Rose has come up here with the lighter and burned it. It burned the mortgage. And I know Rose. She did not pay one extra penny that had to be paid. So how silly would it be to pay off something that's already paid for, but yet, spiritually speaking, how many of you here tonight are still paying for your sins even though Christ took care of it on the cross? You're a new creation. Yeah, but you don't know what I did. I don't know what you did, but you also don't know what I did. We know what Paul did. He killed people. And he said, i got to put the past behind me and move forward. That is what it means to be reconciled to be, have peace with God, to have your accounts taken care of and balanced. From verses 18 through 20, the word reconcile or reconciliation or reconciling is used five times in three verses. And how many times have you heard us say out here, if God is repeating something again and again, he's doing it for a point. So let's back up to verse 18 to read these verses first, uh, next three verses in context. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and that has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you not notice verse 20? Paul says, pleading with us to be reconciled to God. See, here's the interesting thing about Christianity. Jesus wants to pay your debts. The question is, do you want him to pay your debts for you? I will never fully understand there are some people that choose not to have Christ pay their debts. They want to do it on their own. Do not realize, when you read these verses of 18 and 19, the only way to be reconciled is through Christ. Look at verse 18 one more time. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Now the problem with other cults and religions, they want to make peace with God through fill in the blank, through penance, through uh, sacraments, through works, through devotion, through fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is. And the only way you're going to be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ. So since you and I now know the only way to have peace with God is through Jesus Christ, you and I have experienced being reconciled, made right with God. You and I are now a new creation in Christ. Therefore, verse 20, we get to be ambassadors. I love that. We get to represent Christ. Do you not, do you not get that? The next time you're sitting there at home having a little pity party for yourself, woe is me, I'm nothing in this world, you're an ambassador for God. Now that's a pretty big title. I think that's a very big title. I still don't know why God chose to use you and I to represent the gospel. 
There, there's much better mediums and ways that he could have got the information out to the world about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, he chose to use you and I. You are an ambassador of Christ. So if you're ever sitting there saying, what is my purpose in life? I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. You're an ambassador. You already got a job. Verse 20. You represent Christ. I'm nothing in this world. No one cares. No one understands. God does. You're an ambassador for Christ. I was just telling somebody the other day, when they go into work, yes, they're going into work to do a good job for that company to bring home that paycheck, but you're really going into work to be an ambassador for Christ. Wherever you're at, your plan and purpose for life is to represent Jesus. That's a great honor. That's a great responsibility. But why else would we do it? Because, go back to verse 14, the love of Christ compels us. Jesus died. What else do I want to do other than just represent him? And I believe one of the greatest little verses in the entire Bible is verse 17, being a new creation. I think one of the other greatest verses in the entire Bible is verse 21. Does not verse 21 sum up salvation in a nutshell? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, who knew no sin, took the sin of James Irvin on his shoulders on Calvary 2,000 years ago. So Christ, who was perfect, perfect sacrifice, the this, this spotless lamb. We just got done going through uh, Deuteronomy not too long ago. This, excuse me, Leviticus. The spotless lamb became sin for me, so that way I could become righteousness in God. What a trade. My sin goes to Christ. Christ's righteousness comes to James. Once again, if you study out Paul's writing, that is an accounting term. It's balancing the books. That's all it is. Balancing the books. My book was heavy on the sin side. He takes the sin out. Righteousness comes over and replaces the sin. He balanced the books. He reconciled me. He paid the debts. I become friends with God. I have peace with God, all because of Christ. And so therefore, I am a new creation in the Lord. Verse 17, the old is gone, the new has come. Why do I want to carry the dead body around with me? I'm saved. I'm forgiven. And what happens is someone here at this point usually says, okay, yeah, but you once again, you don't know what I did. You don't know what I, you know, fill in the blank. I did this. I, I don't deserve this. Is that not the picture of grace? You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. See, I think sometimes human nature, we want to feel like we've done something to deserve it. You, you, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace and mercy. It's because God just says, I love you and I forgive you and I want to have that relationship with you. I want to reconcile our relationship. That's the beautiful picture of it. I tell you guys, verses 12 through 21, there's a lot of theology in there, but you walk away with a deeper understanding of what it means to really be saved. The sin problem taken care of, the debt paid off, you're now at peace with God, it's all taken care of. The old is gone, the new has come. So that's why now I can walk around with my head held high, not because I've overcome my past, but because of verse 17, I'm a new creation in Christ. My past is gone. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. I'm born again in Jesus. What a beautiful picture that is. Now, does anybody have any final questions, comments about this? A lot of stuff we covered here tonight. A lot of areas that we went over. Yeah, surely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He did. He died for the sins, the past, the present, the future. And there's a great passage in the book of Hebrews. And it's in Hebrews... Um, Chapter 10, you can take a look at it, verses 11 through 14. And it talks about how the old law, you had to repeatedly offer sacrifices for sin. But it says Jesus came and offered the sacrifice of sin once and for all. And Shirley, you made a good point there too. It reminded me of uh, Romans 5.8. 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this way while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That idea of he didn't wait for us to figure it out. He didn't wait for me to become good and say, okay, now James is good enough to die for. In my sin, he said, I'm still dying for him. Well, that's love, grace, and mercy. Beautiful thing. Anybody else got anything? I can't see it. Is that Shirley? Shirley. Yeah. And that sin should not have dominion over us. And that's a good point. And I would encourage you to go back in that Romans 7.24 that we talked about of carrying around that body of death. I encourage you to read the passages before that and then also jump to the passages in chapter 8 because chapter 8 has that great passage of there's now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And it's a beautiful picture there in Romans 7 and 8 to really see this idea of sin being taken care of, defeated. And Romans 7 8 are great chapters on that. Really great chapters on that. Anybody else have anything to say here before we close up? Yeah, Mark. Well, I would say, sorry, go ahead. I would say if the love of Christ is not compelling us to do anything, my uh, first passage that I come to is I think of that verse in Revelation. Uh, let me find it here. About the lukewarm church, where it says in Revelation 3 I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, for because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And then he goes on to say, to uh, return to those things, and that one is in Ephesians, excuse me, uh, Revelation 2. Oh, help me here, where it says, I, You've left your first love. Oh, here we go. Revelation 2, um, verses, uh, verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. So, therefore, if the love of Christ is not compelling them, they've left their first love. They write, Jesus says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And do the first works. So I guess what I would say to that question is that the love of Christ is not compelling people. According to Revelation 2.5, they're supposed to repent and go back to where they were when they were on fire with the Lord. Repent and do those first works. So that's what I would say to that. Yeah, John. Mm. And I love what it says there in verses 7 and 8 of Romans 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That's some good stuff there. And you know, I just heard a great teaching this week, um, and the pastor was saying, what happens, and not in these words, but what happens if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because the Bible says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. He goes, what happens if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness? And he talked about the difference between being physically hungry and spiritually hungry. He said the thing about physical hunger is once you eat, that you get full, and your body says it's time to be done eating. Well, then you go wild and you get hungry again. He goes, but spiritually speaking, about spiritual hunger, you're supposed to eat, and as you eat, it's supposed to make you more hungry. And so he goes, what happens if it's just not there? He goes, you know what? This is what he said, and I, and I thought it was a good point. He goes, you need to force feed yourself. He goes, if you're not spiritually hungry, and you want to be spiritually hungry, he goes, force feed yourself. Set the alarm. Make the time. Read the Bible. Pray. He goes, because what happens is as you start to partake of that spiritual food, your body will start spiritually saying, yes, I want this. He goes, at first, you're not going to want it. He goes, but as you partake of it and the word of God dwells in your heart and your heart becomes more open to it, you will want it. So what happens if sometimes the love of Christ is not compelling us? i got to be honest with you. Sometimes there are situations where I do not feel compelled. I still know I need to go do it. And it's like, okay, God. And boy, once you get done, it's worth it. It really is. What's that? Put on Christ, yeah. And there's that great passage there, and I love that. And that's in, I believe, Colossians. One of my favorite verses about that, uh, and I can't find it right now, but it says that you're supposed to put on Christ. And we've talked about that out here before, where sometimes we don't feel like doing it, and that's where Paul says, that's when you've got to put on Christ. Because you're right, James doesn't want to, but the Holy Spirit living inside of us 
compels us to do it. So therefore, we put on Christ. And that's in the book of Colossians, and I can't find that verse right now. That's going to bug me. But for some reason, I believe that's in Colossians chapter 2. That's a good point, Brian. Put on Christ. Anybody else got anything else here before we close up? All righty. Well, we will get into chapter 6 next week, and uh, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father,